I think it's more and more in these days about how do you design instruction in the best possible way. And, and many times that means blending, you know, on this continuum from face to face to online, many different kinds of approaches and techniques. You know, you may have a face to face, but you also may utilize synchronous online working groups for your students, or you might have asynchronous discussions to actually delve into concepts, um, you know, in between classes. And, you know, I think pretty soon you're utilizing all the best approaches to meet the expected outcomes of the course. And, you know, to me, that's really what we should be thinking about, not specific terms. I think it really, in my mind, I focus on quality instruction, irregardless of what the modality is. Hello, and welcome to Ingenious U, the podcast where we talk about higher education, innovative practice, and leading edge thinking. Your host is Dr. Melissa Morris Olson. Higher education is undergoing a transformation which we have not seen in our lifetime. Prior to the pandemic, higher education was already experiencing disruption, which has only accelerated in this current moment. Nearly all colleges and universities are scrambling to redefine their futures, and for many, their very survival is now in question. In each episode of Ingenious U, we will talk with leading edge thinkers whose expertise and experience are at the forefront of this transformation. Our guests will include college and university leaders, faculty, innovators, and other professionals who are experimenting with new approaches and ways of thinking about higher education. Be sure to hit subscribe to Ingenious U wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss out on a single episode. And if you like what you hear, you can rate and review this podcast and share this with your friends and colleagues so they can join the conversation too. Ingenious U is a production of Chelip, the Center for Higher Education, Leadership, and Innovative Practice at Baypath University. To learn more about Chelip, visit our website at baypath.edu forward slash Chelip. and welcome to another episode of Ingenious You. I am so excited to have as my guest today, Dr. Eric Nelson, who serves as the Senior Associate Dean of Academic Affairs at Columbia University in the School of Professional Studies. Now, in this capacity, Dr. Nelson is charged with establishing a unified vision for the Academic Affairs Unit, which essentially Uh, entails providing curricular leadership to the school's portfolio of academic offerings, including 17 master's degree programs and a growing suite of professional programs. Now, one of the reasons I'm so excited to talk to um, Dr. Nelson is uh, so that you can all get a sense of his vision and his thoughts about where we're headed in this time of great change. He actually started as a classroom teacher Uh, then became a faculty member administrator. He was the founding dean of the School of Continuing Studies at Arcadia University before moving to Columbia. But most interestingly, he has a PhD in instructional design for online learning, which I take to mean that he is a real expert 
in what's going on right now with all of the um, the change and the the challenges that institutions are facing as they are switching modes of delivery. So, Eric, welcome and thank you for being my guest today. Thanks, Melissa. I'm actually very excited to be here. I love having conversations with you. Great. Well, that that is that goes both ways, and so. Um, I want to ju just jump right in and ask you, um, how did you wind up at Columbia? Yeah, I always like to start by asking people a little bit about their career journey. And I think it's interesting. I, you know, I think a lot of people probably think about Columbia as a very traditional, uh, obviously a premier, a very, very high quality institution. But so many of the things that you have been doing there are very innovative and you are an entrepreneur. So how did you wind up there and and can you tell us a little bit more about the work you're doing at Columbia? Sure. So I really would like to begin by saying it has been a really fun and an interesting journey for me. As, uh, as you mentioned, I did start out in K-12. And uh, in really thinking about my journey, uh, I can really take it back to one really integral point in my career, which was the assistant superintendent of the school district came into my classroom and he was carrying this big box and he just dropped it on my desk and said, figure out what you can do with this. And I opened it up and it was an early model Apple computer. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, at this point, computers were not very common in, in schools. And uh, it actually set the course for my professional career because I had a great time experimenting with what I could do with the computer, but not only just what could I could do with it, but how I could use it you know, as this tool for teaching and learning. Um, so that actually put me on the pathway to get a, a master's of education in instructional technology. And uh, through that process, became very close to the chair of the department. And after graduating, he asked me to start teaching. And I kind of spread the, the barriers between K-12 and higher ed for a couple of years. And I finally made the jump to higher education. I took a job. Uh, working at Arcadia University, really it was focusing on working with uh, faculty at the university on how to utilize technology in, in their teaching. And um, one of the first things I, I did there was I started a pilot um, to create the first the university's first online courses. And we were going to do a pilot in the summer. And I was working with a colleague, Jonathan Church, who's a, a senior faculty member and had a really great time doing this. And it was so successful, uh, you know, students really flocked to the online courses for the summer. But the funny part of it is, is that we realized that we were focused, so focused on summer that when fall came, we didn't have anything to offer. So uh, <laughs> it was, but it was a great experience. And actually that led to my next trajectory, which was moving into my first deanship or assistant dean, uh, which was focusing on building the, the uh, university's online programs. And as you mentioned, that led to being the founding dean of the, the School of Continuing Studies, which really focused on non-traditional learners. Um, and I say that with some kind of tongue-in-cheek, because I, you know, the non-traditional learners I, are really the norm, I think, in this day. Um, but after that, uh, was had an experience that was probably one of the most fun experiences in my career, which was uh, building a satellite campus and being able to design the campus, the learning environment. And uh, that was really, I think, uh, probably at the point of 
being creative from an academic perspective, looking from the furniture to the technology and everything. So after completing that satellite campus, I saw the opportunity to, at Columbia was looking for uh, an associate dean of online learning. And, uh, you know, New York has always been a place that I loved and, you know, it was a perfect time in my my life. Uh, my ch children were all really grown and uh, had gone to college. So I uh, put my hat in the ring and was very fortunate to get the offer at Columbia. And I know you mentioned that, you know, you don't think about Columbia as um, a very, like, innovative place, and we may talk a little bit more about this, but when I got to Columbia, I thought I had died and gone to heaven because <laughs> I, I had a team of over 40 people, instructional designers, mm -hmm. online support people, academic technologists, and I even had a media team. Mm -hmm. And um, so there was an amazing amount of an intentional effort placed on looking at online as an important part of our future in the school that I was in. Okay. And uh, so that's, that's really, you know, it, it's where I think it was very, um, Christine Billmeyer was the dean at that point, And I think she had great foresight to, to really build that unit. And that's led me to where I am today, which is, uh, you know, really I've worked with all the programs. So now I oversee those programs, faculty affairs, curriculum instruction and academic administration. So it's actually been a really fun ride uh, from a professional perspective. Mm. Now, let, let me ask you, I, so the, the environment that you found when you got to Columbia, you describe as being very uh, dynamic and, and entrepreneurial. Um, is that is so is your unit is your school does it act somewhat like an incubator for innovation at Columbia or or have you found and I don't know if you I don't know how openly you can talk about this but it have you found uh, innovation to be fairly widespread there well I, I think you can look at it a, a, in a couple ways and from a research perspective Columbia is incredibly innovative I mean there's um, amazing research that takes place here on a daily basis and you know only recently due to COVID it was suspended for the first time that I, I think ever mm -hmm. um, luckily the researchers are, are back uh, to their work now but from a, I think from a pedagogical standpoint from a, a standpoint of teaching the innovation uh, at the university not so aggressive in this area I mean look being face-to-face -face in New York City on Columbia's beautiful campus that's what the students here have desired to do, and they've sure. done that forever. But our school, um, you know, it, it's situated in this great institution which prides itself with its history that dates back to 1784 and still does a lot of the same things, which really was in contrast with, um, you know, what we were being asked to do, which was to be uh, innovative, to do um, cross-curricular programming and programming in a way that would meet students where they were rather than having everyone have to come to Columbia. So I, I would say that, um, you know, it's it's been somewhat of a challenge at times because uh, when we first started putting together online uh, programs, we really weren't supposed to use the word online because it wasn't valued or received well here. Mm -hmm. Uh, now, luckily, you know, it, it's changed over the last couple of years, but I mean, it's gaining acceptance. It's, we're not there yet. But, you know, ironically, when 
COVID-19 hit, we were incredibly prepared to make the transition because even though we have many programs that are fully online, even our programs that are not fully online, they have online courses. So many of our our faculty were already adept at at teaching in this modality. And uh, it actually was interesting because the uh, arts and sciences faculty, you know, they've been teaching face-to-face one way for a very long time. And we actually were called in to help train several hundred of them. We provided them support throughout the summer at the spring and summer terms. And at that point, I think there was an awakening that this unit that we had constructed really was of incredible value. And uh, I think the positive through all of this is that the faculty and some of the senior faculty who thought that online learning was terrible, or how could you even think about doing that? They, they actually started to realize that not only is it possible, but it, you can do it in ways whereby there were certain things in the physical space that you could do online that you couldn't do in the regular classroom. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, we, we, are, we have always been trying to look ahead and think about how to change and improve teaching and learning in, in, in our school. And it's actually been very good to have these intera- interactions with the rest of the Columbia community now and, and having them starting to see the value in this. Mm-hmm. So COVID has had somewhat of a silver lining, if that can be, if that can be said for the, the value, how others perceive the value of your school. Which yeah, I think, is, yeah. Yeah. I Go think ahead. if you're, if you're looking for a silver lining that, that actually, I think you're absolutely correct. It, it would be, that it really forced people to engage with this different modality and, and realize that you know, it was possible to deliver meaningful instruction in this way. Now, I wanna go back to something you said um, that, that it wasn't that long ago when you couldn't use the word online. And that actually brings up um, one, uh, one of the questions I wanted to ask you about it. As you know, there have been a dizzying and what sometimes seems to be confusing array of terms bandied about to describe all of these new approaches to learning, including online, remote, distance, digital, virtual, hybrid, high flex, and I could go on and on. I'm sure there's many more you know. <laughs> so, you know, is there, from your perspective, is there a commonly or are there some commonly accepted terms today that we should all be using and, and does it matter? So I have two ways of looking at the answering this. Um, let me start by saying, I think it matters a lot to me. Um, this spring, you know, we were given basically two days to move away from in-class instruction to what people were calling online instruction. And I was very vocal about this in in the very beginning saying that it's not online instruction, it is remote instruction. Um, Our our online courses that we design have very thoughtful instructional design that blends the best of synchronous and asynchronous approaches. And that just doesn't happen in two days. Um, Mm -hmm. Just moving your lectures to Zoom really doesn't qualify in in my estimation as as online learning. And actually, I was very alarmed because I I was reading the Chronicle of Higher Education and I came across an article that title was titled, Now We'll See If Online Learning Actually Works. Mm -hmm. And, you know, to me, that was very dangerous um, because I didn't want online learning to get a bad rap for just being this thing that you did synchronously on Zoom. Um, you know, so that, that was 
very concerning to me. You know, as I mentioned, you know, we have a great team here and they, they really were, we were fortunate that we mobilized very quickly. We started to offer an enormous amount of training opportunities for faculty, not only on other technologies to use, but also pedagogical strategies within the online modality. And I think that we really reaped the benefit of, of those efforts because our students actually, um, when we surveyed them at the end of the spring term, were, were very satisfied with, with what had happened. But then again, you know, on the other side of this, and I said I was going to answer this in two ways, you know, I see these approaches, you know, really across a continuum. And, um, you know, I, I think it's more and more in these days about how do you design instruction in the best possible way. And, and many times that means blending, you know, on this continuum from face-to-face -to, -face to online, many different kinds of approaches and techniques. You know, you may have a face-to-face but you also may utilize synchronous online working groups for your students, or you might have asynchronous discussions to actually delve into concepts, um, you know, in between classes. And, you know, I think pretty soon you're utilizing all the best approaches to meet the expected outcomes of the course. And, you know, to me, that's really what we should be thinking about, not specific terms. I think it really, in my mind, I focus on quality instruction, irregardless of what the modality is. Boy, that's a great answer. Now, I do, I do have to ask you, though, because a term I've been hearing more and more lately, but I'm not sure everybody means the same thing when they use it, is high flex. So can you, can you tell us what high flex is? So, I, you know, um, you're, you're absolutely correct with this, and I, I think it's important to really distinguish, um, even with our registrar system, uh, they they actually had what we call high flex listed as hybrid, and I tried to get them to change it because in my mind hybrid is a totally different thing than high flex. Mm -hmm. um, high flex is more of a hybrid flexible model, uh, hence the name high flex. And the way we are approaching high flexes, and and this has really been designed around uh, COVID, is we have a faculty in the classroom. Um, we have identified the number of socially distanced acceptable students that can actually attend in, in a classroom. So we have, in some cases, you know, nine or ten students that will be in class. Uh, the rest of the class will join via Zoom. So what we're doing is actually we've purchased high-quality uh, 4K cameras. Um, they are connected to the computer for Zoom. And we're hiring what we call video assistants who will be able to follow the faculty member if he's writing or doing an equation on the board, we'll be able to zoom in. So it's, it's a little bit, it's, it's, it's an upgraded, you know, version of what some people do with webcams. Um, and what we um, had to do is that, you know, we believe that learning is social. So it was really important to make sure that the students in the classroom and the students that were remote were able to really converse with each other. So we, we found a speaker a conference speaker system that could be daisy chained together. So we're putting these speakers out into the classrooms. Um, the students in the class will also have their laptops open. So they'll have Zoom so they can see the remote students. The, they will also be on Zoom. So it, we're trying to find a way to blend the, the 
community of remote and in-class together. Uh, another example is this is with um, when we want to do breakout sessions. Uh, I didn't, you know, at first people were suggesting that the students in class would be groups and the people who were remote would, would go into breakouts. And um, what I really wanted to do was have the students in the class and the students on Zoom be incorporated in groups together. Again, trying to, to really make this a community where there wasn't a division between who was in the class and who wasn't in class. And you know, this may sound funny, but to this extent, um, I even printed out um, the face, it was a cartoon face of a student, and I actually taped it on the video camera. Uh, and I did this because the faculty member has to remember that there's students in that camera. <laughs> So, and we, you know, we got some feedback. If they weren't looking into the camera at all, it made the students who were on Zoom feel disconnected. So with that sure. face there, it reminds them that students are there so that they can look at the students in the classroom and look into the camera. And they have a sense of, of being, you know, included in what's going on. So this is, I, I probably, what I should rename it is not high flex, but high complexity. Yeah. <laughs> That's what I'm thinking as I'm listening to you. How in the world you are managing this in addition to all of the other different modes uh, that you're managing? Well, we, we surveyed our students and 50% of them really wanted to have some kind of in-class experience. And, you know, that's, that's a high number. Um, so we're, we're doing everything that we can. We're, we're going to be recording the classes. So our, our mantra has been, um, if you can't come to Columbia, we're going to bring Columbia to you in any way possible. Mm, boy, that's terrific. Now, um, I want to go back to something else that you said, um, talking about what, what you read in the Chronicle. And as we all know, there was a quick pivot this spring um, by just about every institution in this country to online learning. And I know like me, you have heard from many faculty and students alike who have admitted that the learning experience left a little bit to be desired. Um, now with schools expanding online, um, and you and I were talking before we went live today about this seems to be the week where all the dominoes are falling, that so many of the schools that previously said they were going to be on ground are now saying they're they're going to start the fall fully um, fully online. So I'm imagining students may have higher expectations now this fall than they did. I think I think students really gave us a, a pass in the spring for the most part, but I don't think that's going to be the case going forward. So you have a PhD in instructional design for online learning. So. What that means to me is that you know something about what good online learning should look like. And you've talked a little bit about that, but I want to ask you to drill, drill a little bit deeper and describe what students should expect to find. If they're enrolled in an online course this fall, um, or if I were to peek into one of your classes that you have helped to design or you and your staff have helped to design, what what would it look like? What are some of the best practices that that everyone should have on their radar, do you think? So I'd like to start this first because I think it's the building block of, of what you're asking for. And really, good, line, good online learning experiences start with a comprehensive instructional design effort. Um, it, it comes back to the foundation of really 
what are we trying to do for our students? And I just wanted to mention a little bit about how we go about that, which is uh, we actually start with a design team. So when a, a program wants to create a course, the faculty member, the instructional designer, the media person, the edu educational technologist, an online support person, they all sit down around a table. And really what we do is we want to listen to the faculty member. We ask the faculty member to tell the story of their course. And as the faculty member talks about how they are going to teach the course, each one of these people looks at it from their lens and what they can bring to the table to make this rich, robust, engaging uh, experience for, for our students. They, um, they have a conversation after the faculty member talks about how they're going to teach. They uh, all pitch their ideas on what they see as things that they think would be beneficial for the student. And we create what's called a design brief. And a design brief is basically a blueprint for building the course. And the, the syllabus is created at this point, And we create what's called a, a course of record. Now, at the beginning of each semester, that course is copied into the next semester. And we do this in a purposeful uh, way because we, wanna, we want to ensure the integrity of the assessments between the learning objectives, the assignments, and the outcomes in the class. But what we, we do is that we provide the faculty the ability to personalize their course. And by that I, I mean, you know, they have access to Panopto. So they may log in in the first week and say, you know, welcome students. I'm going to give you an introduction to what we're going to be struggling with this week as far as the content and, and talk to the students. And when you're talking about um, faculty not being in the physical presence with the students, I think this is incredibly important that they, they get a sense of the, the faculty, what's important to them, their personality. They also get to then build in, you know, a blend of asynchronous and synchronous approaches. I, you know, I, I, as I mentioned before, I believe that it's really important to have this toolbox and just pull from the, the tools that are there for the right meaning. It's not about the technology. Um, so the students, you know, I, I'm a very big believer in like a flipped classroom approach, especially mm -hmm. being a, a professional school. I think that the more we can put content delivery offline, so that the students can actually grapple with that on their own, have discussions in asynchronous discussion forums before coming to the synchronous session, which allows us then to focus on the really important thing, especially in a master's program, it's not about content acquisition, it's about application. And uh, for, for us, that's really important. So the ability to have the synchronous session become a place where the faculty member can present ill-structured, complex, messy problems to a group of students, have them go into breakout rooms. The, in the breakout rooms, they all discuss and try to come to some kind of a you know, solution or some kind of a, uh, a presentation. And when they come back into that you know, main room again in Zoom, what I find to be really important is they have to present their solutions to these problems. And, and what it really does is it, it shows that there are many different ways to look at problems, many different solutions. And you know, almost invariably, many of them are really viable solutions to a problem, but there are different ways to look at it. And in my mind, you know, doing things in this way allows for our students 
to not only learn the content and grapple with it, but really it, it, it really prepares them to be professionals because that's exactly what they do when they go out in, into the real world. So you, I think in, in our courses, you would see again that the focus is on the instructional design. I, I, I like to say that for someone who loves technology, I'll be the first one to tell you it's not about the technology. Uh, it is about instruction and the technology needs to be a partner in the learning process, not the center of the learning process. If we learned anything from the rapid deep dive into online learning that happened this spring at our college campuses around the world, it is this. High quality, effective remote learning requires a lot more than just the technology. If you want to create rich and robust remote learning experiences, it starts with understanding how people learn and how to design learning environments and how best to use technological innovation to bring about these kinds of experiences. Institutions of all types and sizes are now looking for digital learning professionals who know how to use learning and curricular design principles, technological tools and innovation, and analytics to create robust and rich learning experiences for their students. This is the future of learning, and the future is now. The Bay Path University newly launched Master of Science in Learning Design and Technology was created for just this purpose. The degree prepares professionals for what Inside Higher Ed recently called Higher Ed's hottest career field. In addition to learning about all of the breakthroughs in this new teaching and learning field, you will also gain hands-on experience designing innovative learning projects for real-time college classes and faculty. Upon graduation, you'll be highly marketable and ready to join this exciting new career field. The program is entirely online and can be completed in less than two years. For more information, visit the Bay Path University website at baypath.edu LDT. Applications are now being accepted for the October start. If you want to design the future of learning, take the next step. Visit our website today, baypath.edu LDT. What would you say to a faculty member who may be working on a, a small campus uh, who doesn't have access to that kind of a, a resource and they want to create a very active kind of learning experience for their students this fall? Um, what, what advice would you have for them? Are there some basic things that they could do, should do in terms of how they are designing their, their course? So, I, yeah, I mean, I guess I can look at this because in my former position, when I was at Arcadia, we had two instructional designers on our team and that was it. Um, mm -hmm. I, I would say really in, in this instance, what I tried to do was to create a faculty community. Um, I found faculty that were interested in technology. I found faculty that may not have been good with technology, but had a thirst or a desire to learn more about technology. And what we did is we would gather together and 
have lunch together. We, I would be able to present new technology tools that were coming out. And again, I'd present the tool, but I wanted them to think about whether the tool really could play a part in helping them present effective instruction. Um, and so really, in, in the end, what we started doing is I uh, really recruited what I called faculty mentors. And I started paying certain faculty a stipend when new faculty would start teaching online to be their mentor, to be there, to talk to them about the questions that they had or the instructional challenges that they were facing. So in the face of not having this robust team that I had, uh, I think really it's about community. Uh, you, you can go online today and you can find all kinds of great articles about teaching online. You can find communities to join. So I think it really is about having that dialogue as a faculty that I would recommend to them. Mm, that's a great, that is a great suggestion. And that's something any of us can do. I, I know that I've also heard you talk about um, active learning principles and how those active learning principles are every bit as important when you are designing an online course as when you're designing an on-campus course. And so um, is there anything that you would add there? Um, because I, you know, again, I think, especially in a, in a small college kind of setting, you tend to find faculty that are just by nature uh, doing a lot of active learning. Um, because they, they want to get to know their students and they want to create a sense of community in their classroom. And that, that certainly holds in the online, the online setting every bit as much, wouldn't you say? I, I, I absolutely couldn't agree more. And if that's the, the faculty mentality that you have, you're, that's great. Because really, um, I, I've said this several times now, uh, you know, learning is social in my opinion. And that means there has yeah. to be a high level of engagement between faculty and students, and students and students. Um, so that engagement is really important. And in my opinion, um, that engagement has to be intentional. It, you know, sometimes I guess it happens spontaneously, but really it has to be looked at as part of the design of the class. Um, you know, I, I have a, well, I believe strongly in, in problem-based learning because problem-based learning really puts the onus of the learning on the student. And when you put the onus of the learning on the student and the faculty becomes, you know, the guide on the side, it, you have to have engagement. Uh, so the students have to look at this messy problem and they have to work together as, in many ways in online synchronously to understand what the issues are. And then they, you know, once they divide the labor, they go off and they start working on their own and posting things to a discussion forum where everyone can read and see what's happening. And, you know, they have to work together to come to a solution. They have to create some kind of authentic um, product, which might be a paper, it might be a business plan. Um, those are, I think it, it comes back to your instructional strategies. And it could be as simple as breakout rooms within, you know, Zoom, you know, you have the active engagement there. But I think if you really are interested in getting students engaged, again, it's, it's not about one-way communication of information to students. You've got to put that onus, I think, of the learning uh, really on the students. One, one thing that I, I will say is I'm pursuing right now, and I'm, I'm excited about it. It's called a, uh, a Miro board. 
and uh, the Miro board is and it's a collect. Mir how how do you spell that? Miro. M I R O. Oh, M Miro. Okay. And Miro. yeah, it's a collaborative online whiteboard platform, and yeah, it's, right. it's designed for remote and dis distributed uh, distrib disputed distributed teams. Excuse me. Woo. Uh, <laughs> and actually, it's Friday. It's, it's Friday afternoon. It is. Eric. It is Friday. <laughs> but this um. Really, you know, I, I really am uh, very, very interested in design thinking. I, I love it because design thinking, you know, really forces students to think uh, very in an empathetic way about the end user and problems and so forth. And, and Miro provides this collaborative space where I don't know if you've done design thinking activities, but they use a lot of sticky notes. And yes, right. so they have sticky notes and everyone can come into this this online space and start doing the same kind of brainstorming iteration and they can drop web links into it. And it's a very, very dynamic way of engaging students when they're not even in the same place. So wow. collaborative tools, I think really are things that I would focus on because they, they allow for a really rich interaction uh, between students even when they're not in, in the physical space together. Now, is a Miro board similar to a Jam? You, are you familiar with the Jam board? Yeah, I'm, I'm familiar with the Jam board, except that um, th this, I believe the Jam boards, you need to have a physical device, correct? Yes. Correct. Yeah, so the Jam yeah. boards, you have a physical device. This is simply just, you can go in your laptop and, and you have this collaborative web space. Yeah, boy, I'll have to look into that. That sounds very... Um, the, like it could be very uh, useful. Um, great, it's for great tool. A class. Yeah, for a class I'm going to be teaching in the fall. So now you actually bring up another question that I had um, because you're working in a space that is undergoing so much change. I, I you know, I, it seems like every week, if not, you know, more, more, um, I'm getting something in email about a new tool or a new approach or, you know, in terms of the use of technology. So, um, you've mentioned one tool that you're excited about. Are there some other emerging tools or technologies that uh, you've gotten excited about or that you see some real application value in? So my job has changed a lot. <laughs> in, in a different <laughs> life, this is what I spent a lot of time, which was looking at educational technology. And uh, fortunately, I have, I have teams that do that now. Uh, for me, so I, I actually miss that a lot because I think that looking at the new new tools really inspires us to think creatively about how we can be teaching and learning. But one one thing you know that we are doing, and it's I'm, I'm actually amazed that we're doing this in the scope of everything that's happening within the pandemic and all the challenges that we're facing, is that we started um, we we run a high school program, and um, it, it's. Moving the high school program online, we were concerned about trying to differentiate ourselves or how are we going to make this a rich and exciting experience. So we, we've been piloting with um, a, a, an engineer from our digital storytelling lab here at Columbia. And what we're doing is creating an augmented reality app uh, for those students. We're working with a physics course. And... Um, the faculty member that's teaching this physics course is working with the engineer to create this augmented reality app. 
And in the app, um, the students are able to choose an avatar. And this avatar acts as a guide to, as their guide to exploring the concepts that they're being presented in the physics classroom. And it's really, what I like about this here is that the students are required, it's very experiential, they, they've got to experiment. And as they experiment in manipulating objects, they're actually figuring out the answers to these really complex problems on their own. Um, and another really neat part about this is if they're struggling, the avatar then becomes the guide, the mentor, and gives them some suggestions or clues and helps you know, bring them through the process. And I guess what I like about this is that it, it kind of individualizes the instruction because a student who may be grasping the concepts more quickly gets to advance um, at a faster rate. And the other students who need assistance get into this um, iterative loop where they're presented concepts and given feedback until they grasp the concept and then they're able to move forward. So I really wouldn't say necessarily that it's a, a tool, except it is, it's, it's a tool because it's an app that we're creating. But I, I think this is a kind of an exciting uh, new thing that I'd like to explore more for our students. Wow, I'm listening to you thinking I might even like physics <laughs> if, I, if I were thinking it that way. How, boy, how interesting and engaging for the students. And, you know, another part here that you're talking about is the personalization of the learning experience to where each student is at using this tool, using augmented reality, Correct. which, yeah. So, so I have to ask you then, is this the future of the higher ed learning experience? And, uh, you know, if not, what is the future? What, what are you seeing as the future? Well, future of higher ed learning experience. This is uh, so many things to think about with respect to this question. I mean, when we look at higher ed right now, um, a lot of debates about the value of a degree. Um, mm. There's obviously concerns about the cost of an education. I mean, the cost just continues to escalate. So, but even so, even with the escalating costs, I still think that education is the best investment that, that you can make. Um, you know, sometimes drastic situations, you know, whether it's a war, in our case, it's a pandemic, often force the status quo to change. Um, I don't think that higher education will be the same when we get out of this pandemic. I, um, I know personally that uh, this pandemic has forced many of our faculty to reevaluate the value of online learning and now understand that it can be done and done in a very effective manner. So I'm, I'm hoping that we can move forward from that debate and accept this, you know, as online is a valuable approach to learning. Um, I, I can only think that as technology continues to improve and it does improve at lightning speed, uh, I think that we're gonna find a blend of faculty delivered instruction that may be also blended with adaptive learning technologies. Uh, bringing the best of the both worlds uh, to the classroom. You know, I, I still believe learning is social. I do believe that in-person dialogue and discussions about applications of concepts are really important. But for anyone 
who's stood in front of a classroom, you have 20 to 30 unique individuals sitting there who are all at various places as far as their understandings and, and um, their schemas or understandings of, of the concepts. So I think that the ability to blend that with the adaptive learning technologies as you know technologies improve for students to be able to pursue concepts um, at their own place in learning as long as we don't lose that humanistic value of working together and collaborating and having conversations. Mm, absolutely. Now, for those who don't know what you mean by adaptive learning technologies, can you do a quick, what's a quick high level definition? So of the high, high level of, of adaptive technologies would be where a student is engaging online with um, some kind of a tool that presents uh, concepts. They actually work through the concepts. They're provided with uh, either problem sets or things that they have to do to demonstrate their understanding before they can move to the next concept. So basically, when you first start, you usually do a pretest. So it assesses where your understanding is at. So it will place you at the point where you should be starting your learning. And then you go through these exercises and assignments and things. And, you know, if you're picking it up very quickly, you can proceed very quickly. If it's, if you're struggling, it'll provide you with some remediation exercises to help you get to that point where you can find the proficiency. So I think from a, a conceptual standpoint, that's important. But I think what is, is if it's not done in conjunction with the actual dialogue or discussion about the application of these concepts, I think we would be missing out on uh, a, a real learning opportunity. But adaptive learning basically is an opportunity for students to start learning at a place that uh, they should be learning and progress at their own speed. You know, you always hear sometimes faculty say, well, I'm teaching to the middle of the class. Well, that means that, you know, a lot of students below, uh, you know, are, are struggling and people at the top may be bored. So adaptive learning, you know, it's, it's hopefully something that will allow them to progress through concepts at their own pace uh, a little faster and, uh, and more effectively. Mm, and meeting people where yes. they're at, which, as you know, is, is one of the key principles in terms of effective learning. So, so Eric, let me end with a question that I ask of every guest who comes on the show. And you started to go there with your answer to my question about the future, but I want to ask you to drill a little bit deeper. So as you think about the future in higher ed, um, what what do you think we all need to be paying more attention to right now? And um, what are the opportunities for innovation that might present themselves in terms of, of um, those things that need to be on our radar? So there, there's a lot to think about here. Um, and a lot of people are thinking about <laughs> this question. Um, I think I'd like to start by saying on one hand, I am a firm believer in the value of a liberal education. I think it, it mm. defines who we are, our values, our sense of self in the world, um, and, and how to actually conduct oneself in a civilized society, which if you look around the world today, 
it, it's a great concern to me. I, I think that, mm. you know, being able to understand philosophy and understand some of the great, you know, literary works are, are, are truly important in making us who we are. Um, so from that standpoint, I, I truly hope that we retain those things in the future of education. Uh, but for me, I think that learning will become more personalized, as I just said. I, I, I am a lover of technology. And, you know, when you look at the history of technology from the time we sent people to the moon to today, you know, there's more technology in the phone you hold in your hand than was probably used to put men on the moon. So technology will continue to get better and faster. And I think that this ability to customize learning will be important. I think that augmented reality will shape some of the educational landscape just because of, you know, our, our young people today are very engaged in, in those kinds of, you know, virtual reality games and so forth, but it will allow them to do this in a way where they, they explore. Uh, I, I like it because it's experiential. They have to try things, they have to fail, they have to learn from those failures. So I, I think that personalization in education is is something that we, we need to continue to keep our eyes on. But, you know, I think if that happens, no, I, I don't, I, I hope that we don't lose the humanistic value of the learning environment. Um, learning, in my opinion, is social. So I hope the future is more about how we collaborate on a global scale and how we can use technology to better understand and, and more importantly, accept the diversity that exists in our world. Um, education is power. And, you know, as a country in citizenry, I think we need to place a higher value on education and strive, strive to produce, you know, a world of lifelong learners. And I think that the innovation that's going to happen in education will come from these conversations that we have from a diverse set of people that look at the world in many different ways. And so I think that, you know, that collaborative spirit and that humanistic spirit hopefully will drive the you know the innovation for the changes in in our our educational future and that's that's my hope for the future mm, boy and that's that's actually a very positive way to end and uh i agree with you there are there are so many opportunities for innovation um and innovations that can raise the bar for everyone and i think that's that's what you're saying as well, that um, to whatever extent we can, we can broaden the access um, using technology and using these tools. It's about mining um, the power it, of the collective whole. Yeah. Oh, oh, that's good. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So Eric, that is a great note to end on, on this Friday afternoon. I am so grateful um, for your time and your expertise. I know that you are in the midst of a crazy, crazy time on your campus. This week, your president um, made the decision, right, to to go fully Absolutely. online. Absolutely. So our, our undergraduates um, will be going fully online. Our professional schools, though, will be continuing to move forward. Um, the, the issue really existed because of the residence halls and um, right. You know, one one person, one room, one bathroom. Well, in residence halls, you don't have a one-to-one -one relationship with the restroom. Uh, <laughs> so true, and you, yeah, and you are in the midst of New York City. Uh, exactly. At that.
Yeah. So, well, I wish you all the best. I know that uh, Columbia is in good hands and is well served having you in your position and uh, leading the leading the way here. But uh, in the meantime, I'm I'm very grateful for this conversation, as I know our listeners will be, and I'll look forward to continuing the conversation with you at some future point. Melissa, it's absolutely and always is a pleasure to have a conversation with you, and I I look forward to more conversations in the future. I'm Melissa Moore-Solson, and you've been listening to Ingenious You. My thanks to our production assistants, Madeline Olson, Marcy Moore, and Amanda Emmett. Join me next week for another Ingenious You conversation with historian and futurist, Dr. David J. Staley. In his role as history professor and director of the Humanities Institute at The Ohio State University, where he also leads the Forum on the University, Dr. Staley spends a good deal of time thinking about the future of higher education. His latest book, Alternative Universities, Speculative Design for Innovation in Higher Education, published in 2019 by the Johns Hopkins Press, has taken the higher ed world by storm, and for good reason. Staley is one of a handful of individuals who in 2018 forecast the current global pandemic and his insights about the future have largely been on target. When it comes to higher ed, Staley suggests that the notion of innovation has become somewhat of a cliche and that our discussions about higher ed innovation are rarely expansive or imaginative enough. He believes that the future belongs to those institutions that possess the vision and the courage to step out from the crowd and pursue a strategically differentiated mission. During our conversation, he shares some valuable insights for how to do just that. Subscribe now to make sure you do not miss out on this inspiring and compelling conversation with historian and higher ed futurist David Staley. And as a closing note, we are winding down now on season one of Ingenious You and beginning to plan for season two. If there is someone you would like to hear from in season two, or if you have suggestions for upcoming episodes, please reach out. We would love to incorporate your ideas into our next season of conversation. That's all for now. Thank you so much for listening. Be well and stay strong.